James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are merciful. You are compassionate on us, Father. So as Ryan comes up this morning, I pray, Lord, that you just illuminate uh, his words into our hearts, that we be receptive to them, Lord, that we be patient in these moments and just to listen well. Thank you for my brother. I in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question as we dig in today that I want you to consider. And it's this, what's the best possible thing that could happen to you today? Let me ask it again. What's the best possible thing that could happen to you or for you today? What, what, what would you, how would you answer that question? You know, I mean, if the circumstances were to line up perfectly, what would you wish for? Would it, would it be to, to, to hit the mega million jackpot and no, because their lives always turn out terrible. Don't do that. Um, or, or maybe for David and Brianna, maybe it was to invite your pastor along on your honeymoon. I don't know. That really happened, by the way. It, it was a different place, but yeah, it was fun. Or maybe, um, maybe get a different job. Maybe, maybe to meet a, a soulmate. Um, maybe to be healed from that chronic illness or disease that has plagued you for years. If someone were to ask you, what is the best possible thing that could happen to you or for you today, what would you say? Because how we answer that question determines a lot about how we see this life, this world, and how we fit into it and where God is. The Apostle Paul uh, was in prison once and he asked himself that question. It's actually recorded um, in the book of Philippians uh, as he's writing, he's working it out, asking himself that question. And uh, here's how he answered it. He said this, Philippians 1, 21 through 23. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Far better, friends. Now, so he wasn't, he wasn't talking about taking his own life here. Now, he was just comparing the suffering of being in prison in Rome and, and what it would actually be like to be with Jesus. And, and the Bible has one answer to the question, you know, what's the best thing that could happen to you today? And it's this, to be with Jesus. That is the absolute best thing that could happen to you today if you are a Christian. It, it's, the, it's the place where your deep longings meet deep satisfaction. It, it's the place where your deep pain 
meets deep healing. It's the place where your deep frustration meets deep contentment. And if we fail to understand this reality, we will miss what James is talking about today. As I read through James 5, 7 through 12 multiple times over the last couple weeks, I, I was just struck so many times by how he talked about the coming of the Lord or the judgment of Christ and all of those things. For him, it was so necessary to think imminently about Jesus' return. And, and, and somehow, some way, that, that put things into order in his life. Listen to what he says in, in James chapter 5, verse 7. He says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now, the, the context of this is, is Jesus has already ascended to heaven. This is one of the older books in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament. And, 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 and James is writing to this church to encourage them. And he's a pastor in Jerusalem. And he's, he can't help but think about the coming of the Lord, the coming of Yahweh. So, so brothers or sisters, you know, you can, you can get through whatever form or fashion of hardship for one reason only. And it's this, because the Lord is coming for us. Not, not because you saved enough money or you took perfect care of your body or you always had so much discipline and so much self-control because it won't take you long to realize that those things will fail you too. I'm not saying that we should be reckless with our lives, but at the end of the day, Jesus is the only one that saves, redeems, and makes us whole. Here's our big idea of where, where I want to go with this today. It's this, that patience is the posture of a heart eagerly waiting on the Lord. Let me say it again. Patience is the posture of a heart that is eagerly waiting on the Lord. So my instruction today isn't, you know, be patient because the Bible says so, right? It does say that, but, but that's not what James leads us into today. He shows us the depth of where patience should come from. Because when we, when we consider the fact that Jesus is coming for us, that he's coming to right all the wrongs, make all things new, finish what he started, it, it, it opens us up to this reality that what we see is not all that there is. Patrick preached on this last week. I think he used a rope to talk about the fact that we're a mist in the, in the grand scheme of eternity, what we see now, because God has so much in store for us. So here's, here's what James talks about. He uses this word when he talks about the coming of the Lord. It's, it's parousia. And it, and it means, it's, it's the same kind of word we get Advent from. It means coming. And the interesting thing about it is that, um, is that that is the motivating factor for patience. So if your motivation for patience or your longing for patience is motivated by anything other than the, the imminent hope of the return of Christ, it's going to fall apart. But, but there is a patience that is birthed through the, the uh, anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ that can sustain any hardship. And th this is where he leads us into. I, I was reminded of that, that time where in John 14 where Jesus and his disciples are all together in the upper room and, and Jesus is, is talking about the Holy Spirit and he, and he says, hey, listen, guys, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave um, and I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And he called it my father's house. He said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, my father's house, heaven, eternity. And he said, listen, there's, there's many rooms in my father's house. I'm going to go prepare that place for you. But until I come back for you, I'm going to give you the spirit. He calls it the helper, the guarantee of Jesus with us right now. 
Now the Bible says this, no one knows the day or the hour that Jesus will return. There's been a lot of people who have thought they've had it all figured out with numbers and the sun and the moon and all this kinds of stuff. And you know what? None of them worked out, right? Because we're still here and Jesus hasn't returned. But what I do want to quickly show you is what the Bible does say, just kind of in a vignette form, about Jesus' return. James doesn't dedicate much time to the details of it, but since he mentions it and it's the driving factor of patience, I thought we should look at it for a few minutes. So uh, Paul, Paul helps us in this, especially in the book of Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, and then Peter writes about it too that we'll look about later. But in the last 150 years of, of church history, uh, there's been this um, uh, kind of growing theology that, that, that came out of some misinterpretations of the Scripture that said that there would be this secret rapture of believers and that somehow judgment of the world would come later than this, that, that believers wouldn't have to endure all of the, the pain and all that kind of stuff. And, and, it's, and it's really due to this very literal interpretation of some eschatolo- eschatological text in the book of Daniel and Revelation. Now, one day when I'm old and gray and wise, maybe we'll tackle Revelation, or maybe when I'm on sabbatical sometime, Brandon can do it. But, um, uh, uh, you know, re- the re- book of Revelation is robust, but it's not something we should fear. But it is robust, and it's complex, and it's dynamic. But I do want to just look at what Paul writes about. And if you've got a Bible, flip it over to First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 13 through 18. And just listen to the details of kind of how this is going to go down when Jesus returns. It's, it's really more simple than we think it is. Here's what he says in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or have passed on, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we who believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep or have passed on ahead of us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we also will be with the Lord. Therefore, get this, encourage one another with those words. He says the same thing that that James says, that this should be encouraging to us. So so what are the details, Pastor, right? Well, Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to return, and when he comes, everyone's going to know about it. He uses words like, hey, a trumpet's going to sound. There's going to be a cry of an archangel. It's not going to be this silent thing where two men are walking up a hill and one disappears. No, it's going to be, everyone's going to know when Jesus returns. In fact... Revelation chapter 6 says this, that when Jesus Christ returns, that the people that don't know him are going to wish that rocks would fall on them so that their faces could be hidden from his face, from his glory, because they're not going to be able to bear it because they didn't embrace the gospel while they lived on this earth. 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 goes on to show that the judgment of believers and the judgment of unbelievers will happen at the the coming of Christ. It's a simultaneous event. Jesus returns, judgment occurs. Soon thereafter, the the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth that Peter talks about in, I think it's 2 Peter 3, will happen. It's going to be this event that kind of all happens at once. 
And Paul says, what about that? He says that, that in Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 15, that we'll receive new bodies because these old bodies are broken and diseased and they're fallen. But our souls are eternal, and so we'll need these bodies that fit our souls. And he'll make all of those things happen when he recreates his creation. Now, Paul says to the church in Thessalonica that we should encourage one another with these words. That somehow, as James also says, that these truths should motivate how we live today. That, that there should be a, 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 a focus for us to zoom out and to consider who Jesus is, what he's promised to come and do, and that that somehow helps us today. So why? Because all we see is not all there is. And so the question for us is this, how do we live with Christ in us, but with Christ not yet with us? That's what it means to live between the times. Christ is in us, but he's not yet with us. We're not yet in his perfect presence. He says we long. We long for his coming, for his return. But until then, we wait patiently because we know that he's going to be good on his word. Now, this is our, this is our kind of, I don't know, gospel giddy-up, all right? This is what kind of motivates us for how we live today. And the gospel says it's only by grace that you can be saved, right? That's what, that's what Jesus came to declare to us, what his, what his perfect life in our place declares for, for sinners uh, through faith. And, and he, he kind of says this, you know, let me show you what grace looks like as it lives within the church. This is what he's been saying, you know, faith without works is dead. He's been saying that, that, that grace looks a certain way when it lives inside of someone. He expands on that today for us, and he says it looks like this. Those who get grace are patient. They're patient. And then he goes on to show us some interesting things about that. And it, it, it's patience with God. It's patience with one another. It's patience on 85. It's patience with your five-year-old son. It's patience with that lady at the grocery store checkout line. It's patience. And it lives everywhere through Christians. But he gives us three specific situations that I want to draw your attention to today that, that will be especially necessary for us to be patient in. First one's this, patience in uncontrollable circumstances. That's the first one he mentions. And he, and he uses the metaphor of farming and a farmer and what he does. The second one is this, patience with the transformation of people. Am I preaching? Patience, the third one is this, patience with the undeniable reality of suffering, pain, and loss. Let's dig in. Patience in uncontrollable situations. You've got a Bible, James chapter 5. If not, it will be on the screen for you. Let's look at verses 8. Uh, well, actually, just verse 8 uh, right here. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You see how it's all tucked into the coming of the Lord, this idea of patience. You know, I grew up uh, around farming. I, I don't have a lot of experience farming, but I do have a couple of times. I, so the house I grew up in in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, on one side of it, there was a tobacco farm. On the other side of it was a soybean farm that I drove my go-kart through once, and that guy was not happy. Um, but one thing I learned about farmers uh, growing up in a kind of rural area was this, is that they live and die by their crops. It's all about the harvest, right? Um, the tobacco farm neighbor came to my house one time, I was maybe 13 or so, and he asked my dad, he said, hey, does your boy want to earn some money? And um, to which my dad said, yeah, he does. Uh, and so 
so I went and uh, and to the uh, I went to him and he said, "Okay, I need some help cutting tobacco." Now, you know, whatever you think about tobacco, that's fine. It's where I grew up. It's it's Kentucky. So, uh, so basically, the tobacco was still in the field. It w- it was it was time to get it out of the field uh, and get it into the barn where it dries out, and then you and then you um, you know take it to the market after that through a process. And and so basically, he was like, "Okay, you need to you're going to be cutting tobacco." And, and here's here's the deal for him. It was a it was a no lose situation. Because you get paid by cutting the stick in tobacco, okay? There's different price ranges for that. And so you've got, here's how it works. You've got the stalk of tobacco right here. It's about yay high and it's disgusting. And uh, you, you take your hand, your left hand, if you're, if you're right-handed, and then you take this hatchet, right? And you, so lots of sharp tools, hatchet, you cut it, drop your hatchet, then you take the stick and you turn around and you put on a tobacco stick that has this really sharp spear on the other side of it. So you kind of do this right here. So lots of times the guys would get like speared in the head with these things. It's not, not safe. And so I was extra cautious, okay? So cautious that I got about a tenth of the sticks that the other guys did in that first day, which meant I made like 50 cents, you know, an hour. It was, it was not great. So the farmer had this idea. Uh, he said, okay, I need some help driving. I need somebody to, to transport the tobacco on the, on the tractor, you know, and the sticks, bring back sticks for us. And I said, uh, sure, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm 13. Um, and so he, he uh, it's about two miles away, and, and uh, so we, we get on, it's loaded down with tobacco, we're ready to take it to the barn, which they'll, you know, store it in the barn where it can dry out, and, and uh, <clears throat> there was only one problem with the situation, and it was this, I didn't know how to drive a tractor, and so uh, I'm talking to my buddy Scott, I'm like, Scott, can you get this thing going for me, and so uh, he gets it going, and I jump on it, but I'm driving, and the problem is I don't know how to stop it, okay? And I've got a trailer full of tobacco, and so I'm driving around for literally at least two hours on the, on the, like the, high, the, the rural highway out there, and, and they finally, they come and get me, and, uh, and I'm embarrassed. And I said, you know, how about I just, I just take a break this year and come back next year? And he said, I think that's a good idea. And so, uh, but the, the, the point of all this is that farmers are patient for a long time, but when the harvest is ready, it's time to work. And, and, and I, was, uh, I was in the way of them getting work done because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But, you know, farmers, sometimes they have this great crop and other times one that's not so great. Um, but one thing is for sure, it is almost completely out of their control. And that's the point that James draws our attention to here. And he says, listen, you know, they can prep the soil, they can fix the equipment, they but they can't control the sun, the rain, or even the growth. That's why sometimes when you, when you overwork a field, you can have all of the sun and all of the rain and all of the right things happen, but the crop is still not good because the soil doesn't have the nutrients that it needs to give to that. So that's why farmers have their crops go through different cycles where they put different crops in those fields so they draw out different nutrients. And then there's even a thing where farmers will let a, a field life fallow. Have you ever heard of that before? That's interesting when they let a field life follow. So it's this, it's this season for a farmer that has apparent barrenness. Like there's nothing going on on top. You're thinking, man, that farmer's lazy. He didn't plant anything this year. He's not going to make any money. His kids aren't going to eat. How's this going to work out for him? But what you see is that as a field lies fallow, that it's, it's, it's replenishing the nutrients of the soil. That there's, there's something miraculous happening under the surface that's preparing for the harvest. So there's always work that's happening even though the farmer is waiting. Its fertility is being restored. Think about this with our lives and, and, and the call to be patient, patient that James gives us. You know, 
To establish our hearts means to make sure that, that they're rooted, that, 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 that our hearts are, are sunk down deep into God's love, to God's grace, that, that sometimes when we blow past those seasons of waiting by not being patient, that we circumvent the work that God actually wants to do. I mean, how many times do you find yourself in a situation like a farmer where you're kind of in this place of helplessness and, and a complete lack of control, and, you're, you, and then you say something that sounds so dumb when you look back on it, I just wish there was something I can do. And, and what you're saying to God is, I don't think you're doing anything, so give me the steering wheel, right? That's what we, I just wish there was something I can do, as if God wasn't doing anything in the middle of it. We do that with God all of the time. We assume that he's not working in the midst of our waiting. But he always is. He always shows us that he's working far more for our good and his glory than we could ever imagine. So you're in this, in this place of helplessness and this lack of control, and you're waiting on the harvest, this next chapter of the spiritual pilgrimage in your life. And if you're honest, you just wish you could be busy doing something to take your mind off the waiting, right? The word that James uses for what the farmer is doing, this waiting, it means literally to, to, um, to, to welcome. And, and so the farmer welcomes the harvest through waiting. Have you ever thought about your waiting like that, that you might be welcoming the gifts of God into your life through this waiting? That God has these gifts that he wants to give you, but you just gotta, you just got to wait on him to give you those. How are you doing with waiting in your life right now? What does it look like for you? Because in the West in particular, waiting is not a welcomed word. It's not a word that we like to usher into our lives. But James is, is instructing us today. He's saying that if you rush through the waiting, if you hurry yourself through the mystery, you're going to miss an opportunity to worship. You're going to completely blow past it just being busy with something that doesn't really even matter because you can't sit still and wait on God to move. But what we see is that just like the farmer in the midst of the waiting, that there's work to do. But it's, it's underground work. It's this work of establishing our hearts, as James says. And it, it takes this eager expectation to wait well in uncontrollable circumstances. And this is honestly why most of us, present company included, have a terrible time understanding what grace is. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. We, we, we are fine with grace. We are fine with grace on the defensive side of things. Okay, I really messed up. God, I really need your help. Come and, come and rescue me from this thing that I did. We love that kind of grace, all right? But the kind of grace that we have a difficult time understanding is the grace that infuses our hearts with power, that infuses our hearts with resurrection, this new way to live, where we can, where we can risk in different ways because God is absolutely on our lives, that he absolutely has plans for us, and we're called to step out in faith in those. This, this author uh, that I was reading this last week, his name is James K. Smith, he, he, he's an expert on Augustinian theology, which is one of our church fathers from the... 300s, and, and uh, here's what he talks about as he's, as, he's, as he's talking about Augustine. He says this, grace isn't just forgiveness, a covering or an acquittal, but it's an infusion. It's a, it's a transplant. It's, it's a resurrection of the wills and the wants. It's the hand of higher power that made you and loves you, reaching into your soul with the gift of a new will. Grace is freedom. So that waiting and establishing of ourselves, 
is really about us learning to live in grace. Learning to live out of a new power other than our own willpower. It's a much better way to live. Sometimes it might feel like you're being lazy because you're waiting on God. I can, I can assure you that's probably just your American self just kind of thinking you can do more than you really can, all right? Most of the time, it takes so much effort and concentration to wait to see God work. But when he does, how much joy and fulfillment do you get when you see him move and give you the longings of your heart? He's, he does it over and over and over again. So as we kind of move on here, what are you rooted and established in this morning? How, how would the resurrection of grace, the infusion of grace into your heart that God promises to give us, kind of that offensive side of grace, how would that change the way that you wait? What would that look like for you? For the coming of Jesus and your anticipation of that, to change how you wait as you think about grace. Secondly, he says this, that, that uh, you know, there's, we're called to be patient in uncontrollable circumstances like that farmer. And we're called to be patient with people that don't change as fast as we want them to. But listen to what he says. This one caught me off guard a bit. James 5, 10, and 11 do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. So it's interesting. I just want to say this real quick. When he talks about judgment, he's talking about the coming of the Lord. So you see now, coming of the Lord, judgment, it's all over this passage. I can't unsee it now. So he's, he says, hey, this is the motivation. The judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, consider those blessed who remained steadfast. So a prophet. I started thinking this week, what does every prophet do? Prophets kind of got two things going on, right? Biblical prophets, think about them. They have got a message that God has given them and a people that God has called them to. Do they not? They probably got some other things going on, but every prophet I know of, a message that God has given them, for John the Baptist it was what? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Just about every other prophet in the Old Testament was basically the same thing without the baptism piece. Repent, repent, repent. God's judgment is going to be poured out on you, right? But then he's also given them a people that he's called, called them to. So some Old Testament prophets were, were called to Judah. Some were called to Israel. They were called to different people at different times in Babylonian captivity or in the wilderness. I mean, different places where God has called these prophets to be, different people he's called them to. But they've always got a message and a people. Now, the interesting thing about the prophet is um, the, the, the prophet is given this good news to give to the people. But the issue is, is that the people don't really want to hear the good news. Or if they do want to hear the good news, they hear it for a little bit. And then the fulfillment of the promise that the prophets talked about, like you're going to be delivered out of Babylonian captivity, is like 70 years later. And then they get tired of it, right? And they, they get weary because they're tarrying and waiting on the Lord. And then they just get distracted and they get busy with other things like making idols and things like that, right? Isn't that what happens? It's what happens. And so the prophet is this, this character that I always see in Scripture as, man, I mean, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, right? You know, Isaiah was, you know, pretty much the same. I mean, they were all just kind of, man, I just, I, you just get this picture of like yearning endlessly over the people that God has called you to serve and proclaim a message to and seeing very little repentance, very little transformation. That's the message that I get of a prophet. And I, I think there's a version of that that James wants us to consider today, to consider the prophet and what God has called him to. The, the interesting thing about this word patience is is this, it's, 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 it's kind of two Greek words put together, 
Macro, meaning long, big. Thermos, meaning hot. So when you put the two together, you get long heat. <laughs> that, that's what patience is, is, is long heat. So I was thinking, you know, about like a metallurgist that, that takes raw metal, they heat it up, and they, they try to, you know, form it into something else. And the temptation is to just turn it up to 11, right? Just get as hot as you can. But the problem is, is that if, if you just scorch it, you just kind of burn the outside of the metal. You don't get to the core of it where it's this, this liquidy form that you can put into something. But then I started thinking about a, an example that was actually more applicable to me, cooking a grilled cheese sandwich. All right? And my kids love grilled cheese sandwiches, right? And uh, the problem is I don't have time to make grilled cheese sandwiches sometimes. So what I do is I get the griddle out, and I put it on 400 because I want that thing to get done quick because i got to cook a lot of them. Uh, the boys are getting bigger now. And, uh, and so you put a couple sticks of butter on there. I'm just kidding. I don't put that much. But you put, you put butter on there. You put on the toast. You put the cheese on, slice it up, put it on there. And you put that grilled cheese sandwich on the griddle at 400 degrees, and your smoke alarm's going off in about 10 seconds, right? Right? It's, and it's burned on the side. You flip it over, the same thing. It's burned, and the cheese in the middle is what? It's cold, right? It's not a grilled cheese sandwich anyone wants to eat. Well, you bump that thing down to about 225, 250, let the butter simmer a little bit. You put it on the griddle. You let it take its time to, to cook well. The cheese is kind of starting to drip over the edge a little bit. Some of you are hungry right now. And then you flip it over, you cook the other side, and you have this amazing grilled cheese sandwich. The, the cheese is warm. You're ready to eat it. It just takes more time. Isn't that what God's calling us to do? To be, to be patient. To be patient in our waiting. A scorched grilled cheese with cold cheese in the middle is nothing that any of us want to eat. But a people that seem white hot for Jesus for a little bit, that are cold on the inside, is exactly what a prophet dealt with all day long. So the, the thing that a prophet of God was called to do was to be patient with people as God's messenger, but for them to be warmed by the truth of God that he proclaimed. And the thing that we see about this is that lasting change and transformation does not happen overnight. Every once in a while you see this person that just seems like their life just completely turned upside down in like a day or two, right? But then you see later that there are still some places that aren't worked out at. Because that's how sanctification works. It's macrothermos, this patience that God calls us to with people as they are changing. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing more frustrating sometimes when you're in a situation with someone where they're not changing as fast as you want them to, right? It could be a kid. You know, I've told you that a thousand times. Well, it doesn't matter. Macrothermos, long heat, right? That's what they say to you. Hey, Dad, you, you preached on this. You know, it's, it's this long process of God warming us to his word and himself. But we have this temptation to just give up on people. We have this, we have this temptation to just assume that we weren't exactly the same way, just with a different sin. There was someone that God called to be patient with us as we changed and were transformed. And we start doubting, God, are you really at work here? It could be with that sibling, the parent, the child, or even that person in your D group that just keeps on dealing with the same old thing. You wonder, God, even at work here. Peter writes this. He says, but do not overlook this one fact in 2 Peter 3.8, following. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. 
in a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. So, so not just that stubborn person in your life that you're like, hey, you want to read this? Like, no, he's patient with you. He wants, P- Peter's calling us to examine our own lives, our own transformation process, and how long it has taken us to get some very basic, fundamental, elementary truths from our head down to our hearts, right? Somebody said that the distance between heaven and hell is 18 inches from the head to the heart, right? And that's what it is for us, is getting the gospel deep down. He says that, 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 we, that, uh, that God's patience is motivated by this, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, things that can't dissolve. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will burn as they melt. But according to his promise, here's the key, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So in the same way that a prophet And James calls us to be like prophets in our waiting. He's patient. We look to what God's going to do. But today we understand that things are right on time. God's right on schedule. He's not behind. He didn't miss the train. He's right where, you're right where he wants you to be. And he's he's right alongside us working in the midst of our waiting, working in those people that he's called you to that aren't changing. And then he calls us to consider ourselves. Think about how long it took you to work through that situation. Think about even how much judgment you still have in your heart. Consider yourself. The best way to make the most sense of waiting on the Lord and finding purpose as we wait on Him is to be on mission with God. It's the thing that draws everything together in our lives as we live on this mission with Him. To be on mission of seeing people transformed over time through disciple-making relation. Ships. I find it interesting that that's the way that God chose to change the world, is through disciple-making. An inefficient way of changing, seeing life change and transformation, right? It takes an incredible amount of time to see people change, but it's the way God has set this whole world up. So are you angry? Are you tired? Are you hopeless with those that God has called you to invest into? Are you just ready for Jesus to come back and hang it up? James says, consider your own journey. Peter says, consider your own journey. Think about how long it took you to change and the patience that it required of God and others to invest in you so that you might have lasting change in your own life. Lastly, he says this. Uh, He talks about patience through suffering and loss. So so we got got patient, the the farmer, you know, patience with uncontrollable circumstances. Um, Then you got the prophet, patience with, with slow to change people including yourself, and and three, patience with the undeniable reality of of pain and with loss. And and the the person that he he mentions here is the person that we would all mention if you've read the scriptures before. He talks about Job, and here's what he says. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the, the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is, he's compassionate and merciful. But above all, 
My brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be a yes and your no be a no, so you may not fall under condemnation or judgment. So he's, on that last part, I'm not going to spend a ton of time there, but he's, he's saying that, that when we understand the coming of the Lord and the patience of the coming of the Lord, we don't need to bolt on these extra, these extra securities to our words. You know, saying, I promise I'll do this and I'll do that. That when we're keep focusing our eyes on Jesus, our word can be trusted because we're patiently waiting on him to fulfill all things. So, so back to Job here. Um, so the enemy came and asked permission to tempt Job. If, I don't know if you've read this, Job 1 and 2. Um, that, that he might prove his power over the Lord. And, and, and the Lord says, fine, you can go after Job, but just don't touch a hair on his head. Don't touch him. Um, so, well, the, the enemy begins piece by piece to take everything out of Job's life, everything that he loves. You know, it's, uh, it's his family, it's his friends, it's his health, it's his wealth. And there he is, barren and exposed before the Lord. And for like 36 chapters, do you know what happens? Job listens to a lot of bad advice. He wrestles with God. He questions God. He, he doubts God. Um, he, he, his wife wants him to curse God. I'm not sure if he does or not. I don't, I don't think he does. Maybe he does. Anyway, what you, what you begin to see in Job's life is this active wrestling in the midst of the waiting. That, that suffering and pain evoke things in your life that you have never seen before. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, where did that come from? When, when some kind of relational conflict or, you know, marriage crisis or diagnosis comes out, you just go through all of these just strange things that you thought, you know, I, I saw my dad deal with that, but I would never deal with that. And, and these things start coming out of you. And the temptation is to just say, okay, I can't let anybody see that. Nobody can hear about that. I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm definitely not going to counseling. That, that's the temptation right there, okay? Because we've got we to keep the front, right? Everything's good. I'm strong, right? But Job lets God have it. He does. The Psalms, you don't believe me? Read David in the Psalms. Let's God have it. I think we think that God is a lot weaker than he is. But, but you know what God does? Is he lets Job have it. Right? He does. So 36 verses of Job wandering around through the proverbial wilderness of his feelings and emotions through his losses and some bad friends uh, lead to the last like three chapters of Job. And you see, the thing about the book of Job is this, is that, and I've said this before, but we think Job, the details of what happens through like the, the loss of Job and then getting everything back, that could be like six chapters. And we're like, hey, just give me the Reader's Digest version of Job. That'd be great. If you could just give me those six chapters, cut out the middle, we'll be in good shape. That's how we like to think about suffering. That's how we like to think about pain. But it doesn't work that way. It takes 42 chapters to work through it, right? It, 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 that's how it works. And so Job finally comes back to God, and, and, he, and he says this. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but this is kind of on point here. He says this, where were you when I created the world, Job? Were, were, were you there? Did you, did you lay out the tape measure and, and, and say, you know, 49 cubits that way? Is that, were you there with me, Job? Or how about when the stars were hung in the sky and they, they sang my glory? Were you in the choir there with them singing, the, singing, singing about that? Where, have you been to the bottom of the sea before when I, when I, when I, when I, when I hollowed it out, Job? Were, were you there with us? Did you help put the fish down there that, that no one ever knows about because it's, they're miles and miles and miles under the the surface of the sea, or, or how about, you know, 
Job, I got an easy one for you. Where does the rain come from? Does it have a father? Are you the father of the rain? And he goes on and on and on for like two chapters. And basically what he's saying is, Job, you want to argue with my plan? Is that, is that really what you want to do, Job? And what's Job say? Job 44, he says this. 40 verse 4. Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. You see, because when you suffer, you get to these places you've never been to before, and these situations you've never been to before, and you start to think that you're God, that you'd have a better plan. And then when God reminds you in his kindness as you wrestle, and he will, you come back to this place of humility, realizing that he had it all together all along. The patience that God describes with Job in these uncontrollable situations isn't a passive patience like we think is the best way, but it's an, it's an active patience. It's this grieving. It's this squirming. It's this, it's this stuff that's drawn out of you. You couldn't imagine being drawn out of you. So where is the unavoidable pain of suffering in your life present today? How is the Lord's presence under pressure in your life revealing something about who you are? And better yet, how is it an invitation for you to be changed and transformed by God's grace? Whatever that would be for you. Now here's the thing about what Mike talked about earlier. It takes a community of people to do this. James is going to talk about that next week. When he talks about confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. Yeah, we're going to go there. It's going to be great. But here's the deal. We don't want to deal with it like that. And what we miss out on is the opportunity to worship with a community of people that say, hey, I'm not where I was, but I'm nowhere close to where I'm going. So God, help me today. Be present with me today. Job 42, let me read the last three verses of this, and we'll, we'll close it up here. Job 42, verses 15 and 7. It's an interesting way to close up the book of Job. He says this, And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years. And he saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations in all. And Job died an old man full of days. Isn't that what you want written on your, you know, your, your like eulogy or whatever it is? He died an old man full of days. And he made the most of what God gave him. It's so interesting that we look at Job's life and we're like, man, how, how much did he lose? And I think the interesting thing about those three verses is he talks about the beauty of his daughters, which is interesting to me because I think what it is a metaphor for us to show that, uh, that suffering and pain, that, that, that though we don't get to dictate how that comes to us, that we can trust that God is actually working good and beauty through the middle of it. And don't, don't expect to see it while it's happening, though. Because it, it takes this patience to wait on the Lord to reveal it to us. So let me just kind of recap everything today. The coming of the Lord should encourage our hearts. If it doesn't encourage you, I, I, I want to encourage you to go back and read about it. Read about what God's going to do. Read Revelation 21, 22. Read it. Soak yourself in it. Remind yourself of what Jesus is going to come back and do. And then go back to James 5 and think about how he might be calling you to be patient through the uncontrollable circumstances of life. 
through the, through the people that, uh, that take longer to change than you'd wish and hope, and through the pain and suffering that, that may come your way or you may be in right now. And that'll give us motivation to carry on in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you uh, for your word today um, and, and how it encourages us and it convicts us and it motivates us. Lord, um, thank you that you're coming back for us. Thank you that though we, we don't understand all of what you're doing in this world or in our own lives right now, that because you have us, that you keep us, that we can have patience with you as you work out your plan. And Lord, I pray for those in, in this room today that, um, that, are, that are struggling, one, uh, with what they're enduring right now, but also for those that um, they don't know Jesus. But I just, anytime I hear about judgment, I just think about the, the reality that Jesus is going to come back. And, and there's going to be a lot of people that are really happy about that, and there's going to be a lot of people that want the rocks to fall on them. And so, Lord, for those in this room today that don't know you, God, I pray that you would maybe send a shiver down their spine this morning uh, for the reality of judgment, but also the invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good, to turn to Jesus and to receive a new way to live, an infusion of grace as we talked about, that would motivate all of our days, no matter what they may hold. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.